Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Golf Week Raider Podcast. I'm Thomas Dunn. For over 20 years, Golf Week has provided its readers with the best course rankings in the game. The Golf Week's best lists stand out for a number of reasons. One is its division of courses into the categories of Classic, built before 1960, and Modern, courses built from 1960 to the present. Construction methods have changed so much in the past half century that it allows us to evaluate apples to apples. The second thing that makes Golf Week different is the diversity seen among its course raiders themselves. Though the program has grown considerably in numbers since its early days, it continues to feature a mix of avid golfers from across the country, from competitive national caliber amateurs to high handicappers, men and women, young folks and senior citizens. On a bench by the first tee at Titarangi Golf Club in Auckland, New Zealand, there's a plaque with a quote attributed to Dr. Alistair McKenzie. It reads, a really great course must be a constant source of pleasure to the greatest possible number of players. Golf Week's best ratings are derived from just that cross-section of the golf world that McKenzie describes. Finally, many people know that Golf Week stands alone among the major golf publications in its development of a fully articulated travel retreat program for its raiders. Thanks to the efforts of Armin Cimaroli, the senior, direct, senior director of the program, the magazine offers a full slate of organized golf outings to destinations around the country and internationally. The Golf Week Raider Retreat is much more than a hit and giggle, though. Our goal is to provide continued education for both new and veteran Raiders so that they come away from every event with the tools they need to evaluate golf courses to the best of their ability, learning not just from Golf Week staff, but from each other. To that end, we put together presentations using a range of methods, from traditional PowerPoints and Q&As to interviews with key figures in golf course architecture, superintendents, shapers, developers, and of course, golf course architects themselves. This podcast is an outgrowth of Golf Week's educational mission. While there's still a wealth of firsthand knowledge that can only be found by attending a Raider retreat in person, now all Golf Week Raiders can continue building a depth of knowledge at home or during their daily commute through this series of interviews. We hope you enjoy the Golf Week Raider podcast. This episode was the first one we ever recorded in January of 2020, and we couldn't have chosen a better guest to kick things off. Fellow panelist Jay Blasey and I interviewed the renowned golf course architect Bill Coor at Weekapaw Golf Club just outside of Scottsdale, Arizona. Pete Dye had recently passed away, and Coor discusses the impact the diabolical one had on his career. He also tells some fascinating stories from the early days of his partnership with two-time Masters champion Ben Crenshaw. In the world of golf course design, there's no one who's more respected by his peers than Bill Coor, so a conversation with him is always a treat. Enjoy. We really couldn't come up with a better person to, to start things off with um, other than Mr. Bill Coor himself. Uh, welcome, Bill. Thank you, Tom. Happy to be here. We're going to jump right in. Um, and, you know, it seems, uh, you know, this is a, a January, January recording, and uh, obviously recently in the news... Uh, the passing of Pete Dye. Bill, could you 
talk a little bit about your relationship with Mr. Dai and, and uh, what he meant to the field of golf architecture? Oh, Tom, well, <clears throat> yes, I, I know we were, we were all saddened, to say the least, to hear about Pete last, last week. I, I was actually in St. Lucia in the Caribbean and didn't, didn't learn of his passing for until about two days afterward. But uh, <laughs> Pete and Alice Dye were so influential in not just golf, in golf architecture, but in people's lives, and certainly mine was one of those. I can't in any way say that I was one of the important people or one of the influential people in their lives. I wasn't. I was a, I was just a person who uh, literally badgered them uh, with phone calls and uh, questions to the point back in the very early 1970s, um, for whatever reason, they decided, probably the reason being that they'd like me to just shut up or, or disappear, but instead they they gave me an opportunity to work as a laborer on, uh, on one of their golf course projects, uh, a place called the Cardinal Golf Club in Greensboro, North Carolina. And from there, you know, became a laborer, equipment operator, and generally not very important to any project but for some reason, Pete Dye would allow me to walk around with him and with his associates uh, when, when he was on site. And so the lessons that I learned from him and the, the process in which he and Alice and their, their teams worked have carried on through what Ben and I are doing today and other people like Tom Doak and Gil Hans and, and people. Um, it's it's just his influence has been amazing uh, in the world of golf architecture. I'll go on just quickly to say, I know of no other golf architect who changed the direction of golf architecture in the world twice, other than Pete Dye. He did it when he when he did Harbor Town. If you think about the 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 type of design that was certainly prevalent at the time uh the robert Trent jones senior people of that era what pete did with harbor town was go in the exact opposite direction much more toward finesse and and certain uh qualities of shot making that were very different certainly very different appearing type golf courses much more influenced by the the courses he and alice had seen and when they were traveling in the uk studying the links courses harbor town became so influential that it began to change the way golf courses were done then again at tpc sawgrass he completely changed it again. The whole trajectory of where golf architecture, not just in America, but in the world, was going. And with with the TPC Sawgrass, and it became the most influential golf course, um, I think, in the world in terms of its impact toward what other architects were doing. Well, I think uh, if, if there was another golf course or another shift in movement after those that you just outlined by Pete, um, it probably falls in your hands and your partner Ben Crenshaw's hands at uh, Sandhills as, as a, a turning line, if you will, in the beginning of what many dub as a 
minimalism movement, but others might use other words. But Bill, I wonder if you could for us just share maybe a little bit about your your background in golf architecture. Uh, you can maybe weave how, how Pete fit into that, but how you got started, where you got started, and maybe how you got connected with, with Ben Crenshaw, if you would. Well, Jay, I mean, <laughs> mine has been such a circuitous um, route, so to speak, uh, to get to where we we're sitting here today. Um, it was certainly not planned in, in any way. I never, when I was growing up, I never dreamed of doing what I'm doing today. It's just one of, one of these most, truly most fortunate situations that could occur. But um, I grew up in North Carolina, way out in a rural area on a dirt road. Basically, one neighbor nearby who happened to play golf. And this man, his name was Donald Jarrett. He he would, uh, after work in the in the in the late afternoons and early evenings, he would take me out to hit golf balls in our backyards, and we'd play from his backyard to our backyard, and and then from there we we actually made up golf courses to play from one yard to the other over the corner of his house to go out into there were some cornfields, and when the fields were not growing corn and they were plowed down we'd play out into there and back and and it was always who could get back to to his mailbox first and chip to to win or to stop counting the strokes you had to be able to hit the post that the mailbox was on so we we, I, i guess in that sense there was a little bit of relationship to what i'm doing today but it wasn't it wasn't planned. It was just an in- introduction to golf. I went to school at, at Wake Forest in North Carolina. I was introduced to places like Old Town Club Pinehurst. Uh, in Pinehurst, which became the two. To collectively, they became the cornerstone of my understanding of what interesting and quality golf architecture was all about. I didn't know it at the time I was playing there. It was just I think you even subconsciously absorb these perceptions and and it was only later that I began to realize how how truly special those courses were and how much they had influenced my thought about what was interesting about golf. Quite candidly, I I had, uh, Wake Forest had some very good players. I wasn't one of them, not even close. And, but I got to observe them so I knew very quickly I was not going to make a living playing golf. If I did, I was going to starve. So if I attempted it. So I, I, I enjoyed academics and I enjoyed golf. And, and my goal, as I had said it at that time when I was in college, was to be a university professor and play some amateur golf. I somehow thought those two things could go together and might work. And um, Uncle Sam had a little slightly different idea <laughs> about what I should do. So um, I was about to enter Duke University in graduate school, and Uncle Sam said, no, you should come with us for a while. So I did that, and uh, I was about to get out of the Army, and that's when I saw a golf course, Oak Hollow public golf course that was being in High Point, North Carolina, not far from where I lived. It was being designed by Pete Dye, 
I had no clue who P. Dye was. Never heard of P. Dye. But I went over and I saw the course. It it was coming out of the Harbor Town mold. You know, smaller greens. <laughs> the 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 railroad ties, you know, in the in the bunkers around the water and it was a public golf course but with a whole different uh, sense of character than what most public courses I was used to was, and I just remember seeing it and thought, "This is interesting. I wonder how you can, how do you do this?" And I knew enough about golf, you know, Jay, to know. I thought I knew what an interesting course was. I had no idea how, how they were built, how they were made. I knew none of that. And but I was single. I'm getting out of the military. It's either I'm going to Duke to graduate school. Or I'm going to do see what this is. Once you've been out of the school for a couple of years, it's it's pretty go tough back. to go back. And so that's when I started badgering Pete Dye. I got his number from a guy on the maintenance crew at Oak Hollow Golf Club. He didn't know who Pete Dye was either. He just knew he was designing the course. But he said, I said, do you know who the, who's doing this? He told me Pete Dye. Said, okay. I said, do you know how I can get in touch with him? So Lisa when you probably. first went out there, what stage of construction was it? Was it still in the dirt? Or no, they were growing grass? it in. Okay. They were growing it in, Jay. Okay. And so this guy went in the superintendent's office, Rolodex. He flipped yeah. it over and over. He got he goes, here, here's his number. It's Pete's home number. So I end up starting to call Pete Dye. I want to go to work with you. you know. Obviously, at this stage... Jay, you and I and Tom, we all know there's so many people with dreams and aspirations and everything. It's it's the fact that I ever even managed to get in contact with Pete was nothing short of a miracle. And yet I eventually did. He said, All right, come on down here. I'm in Florida or something. I said, I just made up a story, Jay. I just said, Mr. Don, I'm going to be down there. I'm going to be visiting people. I didn't know anybody near <laughs> Delray Beach, but I drove from North Carolina down there, and uh, I ended up meeting him. And uh, I met him primarily because he was a huge Miami Dolphins fan. And this is back when Larry Zonka and they, these guys, when the Dolphins were the team, undefeated. Sure. And Pete wanted to see the football game. They were playing the San Francisco 49ers. I remember this distinctly. I didn't know what Pete Dye looked like, but I waited for him in this hotel in Delray Beach in the lobby because he said, I'll come over there. He comes over there. I'm just asking people to come in the door. Are you Mr. Dye? Everybody's looking at me like, no. You know, <laughs> a lunatic here. And finally, in comes this very unassuming-looking guy. And I ask him, he goes, yeah, yeah. He goes, so you want to talk about golf architecture? I go, yes, sir, if I could. He goes, do you have a room here? I go, well, yes, sir, I do. He said, we're going to your room. We go upstairs. He turns TV on. He sits on the bed. I'm sitting on the chair in the room, and he's watching the football game. He's paying no attention to me whatsoever. <laughs> and and he's, he's all excited because the Dolphins are winning and everything. And he he, he finally goes, you want to be a golf course architect? You know that old saying about he got a better chance of being struck by lightning than becoming a golf course architect. So Anyway, at the end of all this, he watches the ball game. He gets up to go home. 
he looks at me and he says, we're about to start a job in Greensboro, North Carolina called the Cardinal. Come out there. We may find something for you to do. It was that that then I, I did go to the Cardinal, start off as a laborer and that sort of thing. And, um, you know, the, the influence that Pete had then when I was able to spend more time around him and Alice as well. So it's a, it's been a, it's been a very significant part of my life, and uh, I'd like to say I was a significant part of theirs. I wasn't. <laughs> so one, you, of, one of the things that, to me, is so interesting about Pete Dye mm-hmm. is that, number one, he was an excellent player, uh, you know, top-tier amateur in his, in his early days, um, and he also had considerable salesmanship skills. Uh, which came from his background in the insurance business, I think. And, you know, when, when well, people have been talking about it for years, about Pete Dye's fam- family tree, the tree of architects, that the, really people who, who he mentored over the years. You know, how did his influence shape your views on mentorship and, and how you kind of build up the uh, associates and shapers who who worked for Corn Crenshaw? Uh, Tom, I think um, the fact that Pete um, would, for whatever reasons, allowed me to walk around when I was nothing but a laborer on, on that job at the Cardinal, uh, and then later at Johns Island in Florida, um, allowed me to accompany the group that was walking, that was actually talking about the concepts of the golf courses and the decision making um, was huge. It was huge, you know, for me. I why he did it, I don't know. He he, I, I know he didn't do it because he thought I was going to be something of importance to his company or in, in the future. I just know that wasn't the case. I uh, for years thereafter. He would he would just refer to me as as the guy who didn't know how to start the tractor, which was true. I didn't, um, but he did allow it for whatever reasons there were. Uh, he allowed that to happen, and that got you know when you get sort of on the inside and get the insights as to what's why people are making decisions they're making. It was it was a really big deal to me. So um, I have. You know, since then, I, I mean, there have been times like all of us, if you're very enamored or uh, almost idolize certain people in certain sports or professions, and you would like to just have at least a, a moment of communication, you know, it, it's. I remember writing letters, you know, to a couple of very one in particular, very, very famous golfer at the time. And I was so naive as to think I might get a response. Of course, it never came. And it's understandable why it never came. But to this day, there's still that sense of, okay, this kid, this person, took the time, felt strongly enough to do this. The least I can do is either call him back or, or say something, you know, somehow communicate. And admittedly, I'm not Tiger Woods. I don't have tens of thousands of these. But at the same time, 
there's a, I think there is a connection with that. The fact that Pete um, allowed me to walk around mm-hmm. when he had no reason. He could have easily just ignored me. Sure. So you spent a few years, uh, I'm assuming it was a few years, working with Pete and Alice. I'm assuming you worked on maybe more than just the Cardinal Project. And and then you you eventually did your own golf course and, and somehow uh, got connected with Ben. Can you walk us through how that evolved? Yeah, I, I was. I didn't work with Pete very long, actually, about three years. Um, and uh, he, he sent me off to work... Um, with his brother Roy, who was you know very active in the golf course design business at the time, they had done courses together, and then Roy had, and Pete had sort of gone off on their own doing their separate things. But uh, he sent me to work with, with Roy, and uh, one of Roy's projects was in Texas, where he he, he sent me and uh, the um, the project manager of that golf course. In turn, a few years later, um, was it with new people who were trying to develop a golf course on the Gulf Coast of Texas, a place called Rockport, Texas. Um, so I, Roy sent me to Texas. I ended up, through different circumstances, becoming a golf course superintendent. Another part of the circuitous journey that I've had because I didn't know how to do that either. I knew how to, I knew from a golfing standpoint what a golf course should be like to play on. I had no clue how you got it there. So at the time, Pete Dye had a guy named Dick Fasala from Brookside Laboratories who did all their soil science and agronomy stuff. Dick Fasala came down to Texas. I spent an entire weekend in a hotel room with this guy and he gave me he had consulted on the golf course where I'd suddenly inherited the superintendent's job because he couldn't find anybody else to take it and he gave me a list of everything I was going to do for the next two weeks everything I took that list on white on yellow legal pad I took it back and that's what we did for two weeks and then I called him Dick what do we do the next and he told me and we did it and I was basically pitched into the deep end of the pool as it turned out. It was one of the best things, Tom, that could have ever happened. I was forced into learning how, what goes into maintaining a golf course. And it gave me then the insights to understand what that profession is about. And when you go back to the design side, it's an invaluable thing. It's, a, it's an invaluable uh, lesson into being able to relate to the folks, men and women, who are trying to maintain the courses, and particularly the ones who are going to try to maintain the courses you've designed. And so uh, walk us through how you meet with Ben. Oh, yeah, get connected yeah. to Ben. I think I've maybe yeah. heard, but I think it's... Well, the, the, it, when I said... Uh, the project manager from the course in Texas interned new people in Rockport who were trying to, in the process of trying to build nine holes of golf. And something happened. I don't know what it was, but something happened between the owners and their then golf architect, and they parted ways. 
in the midst of equipment running out on the site. So this project manager that I knew where I was the superintendent said, you've always wanted to be in the golf design business. I'm going to take you down there. This may be your opportunity. He took me and introduced me. These people are obviously desperate. They said, you can have this job if you can stay within this budget. But you can't spend $1 more. It's yours to do. We did the nine holes. It worked. Yeah, they they seemed happy. Yeah. They said we're going to do another, do us add another nine holes onto it. We did that. So the the kernel of a good design career was was there. It sprouted just that much. A nearby proposed project. The project manager of that project came to me and he said, Bill. I would I would like for you to design the course, but I need you to work with some well-known tour player. You know, that was very much in vogue. This is now in 1984. And I, I don't know how that's going to happen. I just don't see it. I don't see it happening. And I don't know any touring professionals, and they don't know me. I just don't know how that would happen. And he said, well, if you could work with anyone, whom would it be? Ben had just won the Masters, April 1984. So I'd seen the magazines that came out. This is probably in June, maybe July of 84. I'd seen the magazines that came out. I'd seen the interviews with Ben. He talked about golf architecture. He had read a lot of the same architecture books I had read. He, you know, I could just tell this guy's passionate about this, and he seems to really know something about it. So. I just mentioned to the man at, in, <laughs> on the Gulf Coast of Texas, his name was Charlie Belair, project manager there, of this project that was not going to happen, Jay. It went underwater. The golf course site went underwater, salt water at high tide. It was not happening. <laughs> but Charlie Belair is the guy who then said, when I said it would, I guess it would be Ben Crenshaw, he took it upon himself to get in touch with Ben's then business manager. It was not Scott Sayers, who's been our business manager for so many years, but he took it upon himself to get Ben's business manager. Ben had heard about the golf course we'd done in Rockport. He just wanted to see it. So Charlie Belair somehow talks Ben into coming to see this. He calls me and he says, Bill, Ben's coming. You go, I want you to meet and look at our project. We did. We, we came because of him connecting with both of us. We knew instantly his project was not going to happen. It just was totally unsuitable for golf, the land. But he introduced us. From that point on, we continued to have conversations just about golf architecture with no intent of working together. Uh, another year went, more than a year, probably a year and a half went by. We would occasionally see each other and talk about courses or we just stayed in touch and at some point then Jay and I cannot tell you I've, I've been asked this so many times but there's no definitive moment in in my memory neither a dinner or a, anything that, that defined and said we're going to do this together it just sort of evolved and said, well maybe we'll try one of these together and so your your first course together was Kapalua Plantation, is that correct? Um, not technically. Okay. Um, 
technically, we, we formed our partnership in, in December of 85. And um, Ben likes to tell the story that uh, he and Julie were married in 85. So he says that Julie, his wife Julie, says that he married both her and me on the same, in the same year. <laughs> so... Um, uh, anyway, he he uh, we we formed a partnership in December of '85. We started four projects. Um, we decided we were only going to do you know we just knew we didn't have the capability of doing a lot of courses. If anybody would hire us, we would do at most two golf courses at any one time. We didn't know if anybody's even going to hire us, but we were we were hired to do. A course called the Uplands in Austin, and another course called the Blake Tree National, of all things, in in Magnolia, Texas, outside of Houston, the same site that more recently has become Tiger Woods's course at uh, Blue Jack National. The National somehow hanging there <laughs> through the, both those, but uh, it was owned by Tom Blake, a very affluent Houstonian, and. Uh, Neither of those happened. We worked on both of them, particularly at uh, at uh, the course outside of Houston. Had eleven holes ready for irrigation. It didn't. It just didn't happen. It, both projects stopped. We committed to two more. A place called High Prairie in Colorado, just down the road from where the Colorado Golf Club would later come to be. That's funny. Um, and a place outside of Baltimore, in Baltimore County, that was going to be called uh, um, Beaver, not Beaver Creek, yeah, Beaver Brook. Beaver Brook was going to be called, that was the stream that went through the property. And um, it, again, all those went down with a combination of the savings and loan crisis of the late 80s. Yeah. It's uh, it just, which devastated the development uh, community all across America. So none of those four happened. Ron Whitten, who had done an article about Ben and me forming this partnership back in, I think it was in January, Golf Digest or something, I think it was like January of 86, he had done this article about you know, Ben and the unknown, the person that had gone together to build, to form this partnership. He later wrote a piece about four years later, then because we had produced nothing, nothing, and so he wrote this thing said we were the only two people who formed a partnership and then immediately retired because <laughs> that's what it appeared to be. During that time, um, you know, you're getting started you had a taste at, at Rockport I'm sure that was invigorating I'm sure going to each of these four projects to get started at that time was a thrill and you were super excited about it and if they don't go through were you doing other things to put food on the table I mean Ben's out playing golf yeah. where were you living at the time and, and what were those times like were you nervous that this wasn't going to work out or well, the first when we were doing Rockport, Jay, I, I still uh, was able to 
continued to be the golf course superintendent in, in East Texas. Um, they were very kind to me by this time and allowed me to go make my trips to, to Rockport. But yes, when Ben and I formed a partnership and, and, and started out, um, it's only because of him. And Scott Sayers, who by then had become business Ben's business manager and our business manager, but we didn't have any business. So, we, you know, to be perfectly candid, we all had to sign letters of credit, you know, to to to, to have some money. Now Ben didn't need the money, obviously. He was the current, he was the master champion and still one of the world's best players. Scotty didn't. It was their kindness, truly, to me, to say, we're going to be able to pay a little something here with this in the hopes this is going to work. And so they went pretty far out there on the limb with that. And uh, it, uh, I was able to also, through a friend that I had met who was uh, Bernard Pascasio, He's from France. He'd played on the, the French World Cup team numerous times as a professional and uh, was very influential in golf in France. Bernard, I was introduced to Bernard. He, it was his idea that I come and work with him to develop a golf course in France. Well, this is after Ben and I formed our partnership, but we had no ongoing work. So... I said, okay, we'd been and Scotty and I talked about it. Okay, I'll go I'll go do this. So went there with Rod Whitman, the Canadian architect who now is so well known in Canada, but at the time was just a young guy hoping with a dream and uh, to be in this business. So Rod and I go over to Medoc in France. We design, work on build the first course. Uh, Golf du Medoc, right in the wine country. Um, later, Rod would design and build the second golf course at Medoc. And, Jay, it, it was well received. It ended up, some, some years later, being the only course that I know of that the French Open's ever been played on outside of the general Paris region. They, they played the course we did there. And it's... It's been, you know, quietly but successfully uh, working ever since. So that that was a big thing in terms of keeping me alive and, and, and stuff. That was, that was huge. I wonder if you could walk us through, I, I know there's been stories about just how you go about routing a golf course. And, you know, many of the Golf Week Raiders they play golf courses. We have our little categories where we talk about the memorability and the variety of par threes and fours and fives. One of the categories in there is routing. And as a as a general golfer, you may not have a good sense as to how a routing comes about or the importance of a routing. Can you maybe just walk us through, uh, you get a phone call from a client, we're thinking about building a golf course. We have this wonderful site. We'd love for you to take a look. Um, can you walk us through what your process is for coming up with a golf course routing? Yeah, Jay, I mean, uh, for me or for Ben and me, it, it's probably somewhat different than for a lot of other people in, in our profession. 
because we don't have the technical capabilities to analyze sites through computer graphics and, and all the things that are available today. So we're still like a couple of old dinosaurs roaming around out there. We're probably waiting for extinction, but we still do it, as they say, the old-fashioned way. The client calls, says, I have a piece of property, a potential client. So I have a piece of property. Would you take a look at this? Yes. We go... First of all, we have the conversation on the phone. <laughs> what are the goals? What are you trying to do? And um, could you send, you know, a topo map or some photographs, something that we can just get a, a sense? And if you get that and you still think this this has some possibilities, we ask to come start visiting the site and studying it. And it is just a process of taking hopefully accurate topo maps and walking with them on the site to determine where the most interesting features of that site are. And at least for us, we, we start with no preconceived notions as to where the holes are going to be or where the, what even what the concept or what the yardage, what the par is going to be. We just go study the site. And for me at least, the process continues with trying as you're walking the site once you've identified the most interesting natural features that you think should be incorporated or showcased within the golf course how do you get to them how do you create a circulation pattern that you could rather easily certainly enjoyably walk to get to these different features if you were out there not playing golf if you're just saying, boy, this is an interesting site. I know there's something over there and something over there and something over there. I want to walk to it, and I'm just going to take my friends and walk around. How would you do it? How would you create that circulation pattern to get to to these features without feeling like you're just mountain climbing or, or doing something that's prohibitively difficult? Once we kind of get that, then for us at least, then starting to break that more into actual golf holes. And certainly we can all go out on a property and see a spectacular setting, particularly for par three holes. They're shorter, they're easier to see. Um, and we all go, man, that's fantastic. That's, that could be a hole, that could be a hole. It might be. It might be that very thing that attracts you at the very first. You find out in the whole sequence of finding the features you want to showcase, finding a pattern that you can travel through the property to get to them, and then finding individual holes or breaking this into individual holes, you may find out that the one that you saw that attracted you the most at the beginning is the most problematic. And and it doesn't even end up being in the final cut because how often do we see courses that have the quote signature hole and the two holes leading up to it and maybe the two going back from it are not very good and you can just identify they wanted to get here so badly they were willing to compromise what led to it and what led away from it so in our case if we have that type of hole we're going to use it if it fits in the in the overall scheme of things but Ours is just a process. Topo, walking, marking. 
So do you analyze? Ta- do you do you, uh, you mentioned <clears throat> highlighting the natural features of the site, yeah. right? So depending on where you are, there might be. Um, a creek, there might be uh, a, a hillside or something that you want to take advantage of. W- when you go around and you're walking, do you typically walk with a, a topographic map and do you take notes about these different features as you go? Is that yeah. part of the process? Absolutely. You take a, you know, mark on the topo directional arrows. This, if you're at a spot, say, that has a wonderful vista but still looks like it could work for golf coming to it and going away from it. Which way does it look best? Topo maps tell you a lot of things. They don't necessarily tell you what's in the distance. You know, if you're standing on a piece of high ground looking in a distance and you go, well, this is a hill. This hill could easily be a collection point for two or four, even four holes uh, coming to and going away from it. If you're standing there, which... Which, does it look better coming towards you? Does it look better going over there? Is it better there or better there? Sometimes what you see in the far distance helps determine which way those holes are going to be if they could be either or in, uh, in terms of whether they're going to come to the hill or go away. So, yeah, it's a combination of making notes to the point that when you go back, as you well know, when you go back, you're looking at the topo map and stuff, and you're trying to start to lay out the holes you want to do and come up with a routing. In your mind, you know what you're seeing. When you're when you're looking at a contour on the ground, you also know what you're seeing, not just in front of you, but in the distance. And it could be trees, it could be ocean, it could be dunes, it, it could be all sorts of interesting things. How, how much more... Uh, challenging is it to uh, come up with an initial routing or or to feel good about a routing when the the parcel that you're looking at is uh, has has vegetation whether it's uh, a wooded site uh, maybe like big portions abandoned trails uh, or even here uh, in the desert where you've got the native uh, desert vegetation, how, how uh, that can play with your depth perception. It's very hard to tell when you're walking through the woods how far 100 yards is or 200 yards. Yeah. Uh, do you have any tricks for how you navigate that and how does that process unfold? Do you, do you start by maybe clearing a, a center line? Well, you, I, I think you walk it again and get the best sense of it you can. Certainly, as you described, if it's heavily vegetated with trees, or bushes, you know, that you can't see over, it becomes extremely difficult. Now you're now you're relying primarily on the topo topographical maps and allowing them. So you look at those that with the contours over here, the inching over here, and over. There. I'll walk through these trees and just see what that is when I get there, as opposed to being able to stand there and see it from where you're, you know, presently standing. So it's a uh, yeah, it 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 certainly complicates issues. It becomes much more of a map-oriented process than a visual on-the-ground process until you can start to open these up, until you've decided, I think, between what I've actually walked over, the contours in the trees, plus what I've seen on this map, so I can relate the contours to what I've seen, even though I can't see very far, in, you know, linearly. I can I can go back and work on this to try to put this puzzle together, and uh, so obviously we'd all like to have seaside 
lynx land next to the sea, <laughs> the dunes where you can see, and uh, uh, it's all right in front of you. I like I like the analogy <clears throat> of the puzzle, Bill. Uh, um, and you've played or walked uh, explored many great golf courses over the course of your career. Are there any, and I'm just thinking of whether it be McKenzie or Tillinghast or Modern Architect, are there any kind of great moments in routing, moments of, you know, whether it be an escape from a tight corner or a use of a feature um, that you just, that jumps to mind for you as being a moment of genius on the part of that architect? Well, I think, Tom, yeah, I mean, you, you, there's, in, I guess, innumerable examples of that. I mean, the one for me personally that comes first to mind is Old Town Club in Winston-Salem, where Perry Maxwell, on a very small piece of hilly ground, managed to route an extremely interesting golf course that's dictated primarily by the undulations and the slope and the tilt and the twist of the ground on which you're playing. Certainly it has some magnificent greens, the contouring of greens which complement the natural contours of the site. But the way he, the way he laid the holes out there to take advantage of the, the, the contours, the hilly contours of that ground, make it playable, make it interesting, and varied it in such a way that you weren't constantly hitting into a hill or just hitting over one side hill, over the hills, through the valleys, across the valleys, that sort of thing. It was a fascinating, I think it's a fascinating study for anyone who wanted to study how to route a golf course on a relatively small piece of ground in a hilly. And so that's, that's one. Um, as I mentioned to your uh, group, it was here this afternoon uh, another experience of that uh, maybe even more closely aligned to your question would be I remember walking Pacific Dunes the first time I saw it after Tom, Doak and Jimmer being in the guys at all you know had all it wasn't completely grown in but it was a lot of the holes were playable you could see them all and uh, I just remember walking it and I, I remember coming back and thinking, you know, I'm so prejudiced because I think our guys, the guys who work with us, who do the molding of our courses, the feature work, I truly believe they're the best in the world. But collectively, I felt like, could we have done what Tom and those guys, could we have done that, what they did at Pacific Dunes? And there's some serious doubt. That's that's a moment you don't forget. Sure, inspiration. I mean, you know, yeah. you're like, man, this is really good. This is really good, and it's insightful. And how Tom did it with doing the crossovers where he did it between the holes, and so that yes, people, say, oh, you don't want to walk from this green across or behind that tee to get to the next hole and that sort of thing. When he did it, the way the the sequence of the holes with all those, those holes. No, what are they? Is there one par four? I think I'd have to go through one on the front, Ooh. four on the back. <laughs> yeah, you know, but par fives and par threes and in and all this stuff that's just totally uh, would be considered to be not just aberrations but just blasphemy in the in structured 
golf architecture world, and and yet it worked. It worked on the ground. Um, I had never seen a course, Jay, up until that point that had used the par fives to link the good ground. Most courses use par threes to get you from one very interesting hole to another. You link them with the par threes thinking you can build par three almost anywhere. Um, Pacific Dunes took the dull ground and built and, and built the par fives, whether it's 3, 12, 15. They, not that it was dull, I guess, but it was the l- least interesting of the rest of that site. Tom and them used those par fives to get from holes like two, which was fantastic, to four, you know, in the case of number three. To get to get from fourteen to sixteen, to get to get from eleven to thirteen, and when you look at that, and you think it's very creative, it's very non-conforming, but insightful. And I have to say, looking at that was influential in when we did Friars Head. We used the par fives to transition from the big dunes to the flat field and been back. So uh, would I have ever thought of doing that at Friars Head if I hadn't seen Pacific Tunes? Don't know. Doubtful. The other one that jumps to mind for me is is just Cypress Point and Mackenzie's use of the big dune in the middle and playing at it at three and coming back and nine, ten, eleven, twelve all the different ways that six and seven in, in which the one feature was incorporated in different ways. Yeah. You know, it's interesting, Jay, I mean, you're, you're talking about routing. Uh, it's, it's just fascinating, all the books that have been written through the years about golf architecture and the very best of those, and, and actually many of them, have addressed the routing or the layouts of the courses but usually only in a chapter or a few pages. And yet, from my personal perspective, the three most important elements in in any golf design are routing, greens, and bunkers. Obviously, uh, Charlie McDonald said, you know, greens are to golf courses what faces are to portraits making that emphasis how important greens are. I might use something of the same type of (laughs) analogy, I guess, and saying routings are the golf courses. What your bone structure is to a human being. Without that solid foundation structure, it doesn't matter what the cosmetics are. It doesn't matter what's on the outside. If the routing's not good, the course will likely never live up to its potential. Yeah, and at the very best, it'll just come across as a collection of interesting holes. But there won't be a coherent, there won't be a flow, there won't be a a feeling that that you're um, in in a narrative of some kind. Yeah. I think that gets lost in today's day and age with the Instagram era. You know, there's so many places around that uh, have a 
signature hole or there's mm. a there's a spot that photographs beautifully mm. on the golf course and it's very compelling and I can't tell you the number of times that I've seen something like that I've been attracted to it I go to check it out and come away somewhat disappointed yes the craftsmanship the green might be great the bunkery might be great but when you actually get on that property and see how the routing works uh, it's certainly not not to the same level as those other features and and to your point bill without uh without a great routing the other stuff uh <laughs> it doesn't have as much to to stand on yeah know? yeah it, it is jay i mean it's uh it's not that the green greens are <laughs> truly uh the faces of uh, of golf but uh you need that foundation, and uh, not just from the physical side, but the, the, the interest side. Yeah. In music, uh, many artists talk about songs coming together either quickly or taking a really long time. You know, you'll hear, oh, some musician will say, oh yeah, that song came to me in five minutes. I woke mm-hmm. up in the middle of the night, I wrote it down. As you've gone through, you've had the opportunity to do routings on a number of spectacular pieces of property have any of them come together really quickly you go out you walk and you find it it's there and almost your your first pass at it is is kind of what ends up becoming what you like best or do you maybe have some other examples where you just worked at it really really hard and you kept fighting it fighting it fighting it and all of a sudden there's maybe an aha moment but it, it took a lot longer yeah, Jay. I think it's, I think it's a little bit of both. Um, in the way the way we go about it is, we try not to go again with preconceived notions. So when you first go out on a property, the tendency is you could see something you like, really like, that first impression, and so that's filed away. You make the notes on the topo, and it's filed away. What we hope to not do is let that be such a strong impression that, again, you insist that you come back and include that in some form, even to the detriment of the overall routing. So, yeah, we walk on property. I've walked on property where you're out on a segment of it, and, uh, well, the sheep ranch. (laughs) The sheep ranch, man. I mean... Anyone, anyone who's ever hit a golf ball is going to walk out there and gravitate to the shoreline, the cliff line, out to five mile point. And say, we're going there. We're going there. We're going back. We're going. You know, you you just know you're going to use that property. You may not know exactly how you're going to do it, or you may. You may go there and go just see it almost instantly. I'm going to play a hole from here to there. I can just see it. And that may end up still being in the in the sequence. Um, it's the it's, it's how the whole thing goes together, though. Again, if you allow one or two things to make such an impression that it dictates a lot of problematic holes, that's probably not the best. It's what's the what's the cumulative value of the whole. When you put all the puzzle pieces together, what's what's the ultimate picture? And uh, that's all subjective. 
everybody's going to look at it different. You go route a golf course, Tom, if you went out and route a golf course. And I did. We'd probably all be different. We may have some of the same holes. You'll see, we'll all go out there from a golf standpoint and see holes that go along a, a, a lakeside or a creek or a cliffside at the ocean that, that bend a certain way and end on a promontory. Cape hole. Bing. Everybody's going to see that. It's the holes that connect those and it's if you if you don't get too enamored of something if you do sometimes you won't see what's right in front of me and uh, rod whitman the canadian architect he had one of the great comments i've ever heard rod said he sees he no he said he looks but he does not see that's a huge statement particularly in routing a golf course if you if you're not careful you start always focusing on the same thing and not see what's right maybe next to it or in front of you because maybe it's more subtle it's not it's not as dramatic or visual or whatever the case may be and yet it could be the key as to how it all comes together to make sense we should we should wind down a little bit. A couple maybe last questions. There's there's different processes in designing and building a golf course. There's that first time on the site, walking around, trying to come up with a routing, getting started with construction, crafting the greens and the bunkers, growing it in, opening day. Each of them has their own kind of specialness to them, and collectively it makes for a wonderful journey to go through that process. Is there a certain part of that process that's special for you that you really love the most? Um, Jay, I think uh, I think there are a couple of them probably. One one is that very first going out to the site and looking, and if it's one of those situations where you go, "Wow, this is really good. This could be really really good." That's a as you know super exciting moment it can also be very stressful because if you know the potential of a site is extreme you know that if you don't produce something that's extraordinarily good you failed Uh, the margin for error is very narrow in those situations but to me those are exciting things to have a site that's naturally gifted for golf and to be able to explore it and study it and try to put that puzzle together with all the mysteries that are involved in that process. Um, but to try to put it together uh, in a way that you feel like it's the proper way. And that's that's huge. I said there were two. There's probably actually three for me. The, the next part is watching the guys we work with create create contours that are both extraordinarily natural in their presentation but hopefully influence the playing of golf in a positive way sometimes in ways not quite so apparent at the beginning and so I just love looking at contours I love looking at them in natural form on a site that nothing's happened I love looking at them in a refined form for golf when they're just about to be uh, planted with grass. And then the, uh, the third part for me, personally, I still, 
I still like to grade greens. I like, I just have fun doing that. I love getting on the sand pro and grading greens and, and taking contours that have been created by the guys and perhaps doing nothing more than smoothing them out. Perhaps working on little things, making, making it sometimes probably what most people think almost imperceptible um, alterations in the surface to the think could influence the playing of golf and make it more interesting not make it more difficult just make it more more interesting so to me that's a fascinating thing to do at, at that point you're you're almost acting like an editor yeah right? you're editing the the creativity of yeah. your shapers and crew no question Tom I've said numerous times Ben and I both have that in so many ways he and I are far more uh, the editors of our courses and we are the authors so. with, with with that uh, you know walk us through just real quickly as to uh, on, a, on a single golf hole that might have bunkers out there off the tee and bunkers around the green are, is it up to you and to Ben to lay those out in great detail or do you walk out there with one of your associates and just say uh feels like we should have some bunkers over on the right uh, at a certain yardage or maybe connected to a certain landform and you guys figure out how does how does that kind of interaction work you know Jay years ago years ago we would work very closely with the guys on the would literally flag off every bunker you know the size the shape we would talk to them about stuff I have to tell you, in recent years, and I'm talking about not just a recent two or three, I'm talking about 15 or more, we're still working with the same guys. <laughs> what can we do? We just go out there and go, guys. If you're talking to Jeff Bradley, who's built bunkers like he's built around the world, and you go, are you going to go out there and say, Jeff, make it just this big. Let's flag this off. It's going to be this angle. I want that side higher. I want that lower. I want this. You know, all that detail stuff that we used to go through. It's a complete waste of time. <laughs> His and ours. You go out there and go, Jeff, Dave Axlin, Keith Reb, whomever, John Hawker, any of these guys, and you go and, and say, we do. We feel like we need a, a bunker, a cluster of bunkers over here, you know, that you can see from the tee that it will influence play. That way. Just the most basic guidelines and and let them let them work. I mean, people like Jimbo Wright and Jim Craig who do, you know, so much of the contouring of our greens and things, there was the same thing. We used, There was a time we'd go, okay, we want – kind of this elevation here we want this shape and 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 uh pen placements here that now we Jay, we literally go out there a lot of times and say all right it's a long power four downwind we need to build a green here with enough depth to handle that kind of shot it's a shorter par par four or a pitch shot par three the green site such that it could be a wide green not you know much more shallow just basic stuff and try not to get in the way because we can complicate it to the point it's detrimental. And if you, I've always kind of 
I guess with our guys, I've kind of used the analogy like, really, if you're sitting atop a thoroughbred racehorse, are you trying to whisper in that horse's ear, pick up your right hoof, put down your left foot, you know? No. You're pointing in a certain direction, go. Yeah. And we're just to top it. We're just riding along. Yeah. No, I love I love football and you know, the football analogy is if you've got the best players, your job is to take advantage of their skill set and give them the opportunity to shine. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. These guys are so extraordinarily talented. It, it it would be absolutely foolish and to try to control the process to to the point that you you take away from the creativity and the and the product that can happen. I don't care who you are. You can be the most brilliant person or golf architect or whatever in the world. You can be the most accomplished player in the world. You can be the most accomplished player and the best golf architect in the history. You still won't have all the right ideas. And if you think you do, you're not an asset to that process. You're a liability. Well, Bill, thank you so much for your time. That's, uh, I hope that everybody's enjoyed uh, this first, uh, hopefully first of many podcasts. Um, thank you, Jay, for your questions and insight over the past hour. And also uh, thank you to the staff at Weekapah Golf Club uh, in Arizona for, uh, for a great day of golf and hospitality and food and a lot of laughs. So I uh, appreciate uh, everybody here at Weekapah as well. Um, again, thank you, Bill, for joining us. Yeah, thank you, Tom. Happy to do it. Bill, thank you so much. It's, it's, a, it's a real treat to hear from you, and hopefully our Raiders appreciate the opportunity to kind of see behind the curtain a little bit as to what goes into designing and building a golf course. Uh, you're very gracious to take your time. We appreciate it. Well, Jay, I, I'm, I'm very grateful as well because of, because of what you and Tom and others are doing to, to try to present uh, – the profession that we're engaged in is, is very much appreciated, and, and um, I wish, I wish, truthfully, that the types of things that you're doing now had been available when I was first starting to do this. It would have been a much faster time. Still, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, thank you. Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.